Good morning to each of you, and I'm glad you're here. Uh, first of all, I need to say that uh, this will not be a normal sermon, and I feel bad about that, but I do not know how to... Uh, this is more historical than it is from the text of Scripture, so it won't be a, a normal kind of sermon. Um, so I had two sessions in which I compared and contrasted the Anabaptist distinctive, that is, compared and contrasted with the Catholic and Protestant view, and I had nine areas. Uh, one was political, social, and economic, and the second was a question of authority and tradition, and then baptism, Lord's Supper, what does it mean to be saved? What is the church? What ethic applies in human relationships? View of scripture and a sense of mission. And I thought what I would try to do, if I can uh, manage to get it done this morning, is take each of those areas and uh, give a brief, uh, very brief summary and and. Um, so I'm going to try to discuss the importance and value of these distinctives and highlight areas in which the Anabaptist view could be strengthened and highlight areas in which, uh, and of course all of this is in my judgment, areas we are struggling or need to be more thoughtful about. I also should say that, that I have never, this is the first time that I have ever publicly uh, tried to do this, and, and I have really uh, struggled preparing for this uh, to, to know um, how to say things and what things to say, what things not to say. Um, the questions, I am not going to state what the questions were that I was given. I, I'm going to try to answer some of them. I'm not sure that I will answer all of them, but I will answer some of them without stating the questions. Uh, another item here, this is all introduction. Um, Concerning how these distinctives can be lived out today, uh, I think I need to say that one's conclusion about how they should be applied uh, depends to some, ex to some extent on which category of Anabaptist one identifies with. And I'll give you three options. Uh, in in general, there were three categories of Anabaptists. There were literalists, spiritualists, and middle of the road. And I think in our, in our day, it, some of it has to do with a person, maybe personality. I'm not sure exactly what it all is, but we still have these three categories and maybe three more, but uh, in our approach 
our approach to issues as a literalist, a spiritualist, a middle of the road, uh, does affect our conclusions about what the Bible says and how it ought to be applied. Um, and I, I had, had to be selective, too, on the issues that I speak about. Um, okay, I'm, I'm going to begin with our view of Scripture, how we know truth. Uh, in general, this is a summary. Anabaptists said that all interpretations and applications of Scripture must harmonize with the life and teaching of Christ. They said that the Holy Spirit must inform any true reading of Scripture. They said that how a person lives is the test of the integrity of what the person believes. That is, a life of integrity demonstrates that one's beliefs are true and right or valid. They believe that you can do only what the Bible commands, and you cannot do what the Bible does not command. They believe that the Old Testament supersedes, I'm sorry, the New Testament supersedes the Old Testament. And the last two of these, that you can only do what the Bible commands in New Testament over Old Testament, did create some difficulty, and I'll come back to that in a little bit. Now, an example of how Anabaptists in general interpreted and used the scripture, I'm using uh, the issue of uh, who is a Christian and who is qualified to be baptized, who's qualified to belong to a church, and what is a valid church. Here's how they went about that. First, they said it is clear in Matthew 28, 18 and following, and Mark 16:15 and following, that the requirement for baptism is that a person first hear the word taught, and then the person must believe, and then he must be baptized into the visible body of Christ. Second, they said that the Matthew 18 gives direction for how to have a properly reformed and disciplined church. I hope you're all listening, okay? There's many things to learn. Matthew 18 tells us how, how to be properly reformed and have a disciplined church. Uh, Matthew 18, it says, If your brother sin against you, go and talk to him. If he won't hear you, give it to someone else. If he won't hear, take it to the church. Okay? Sin must be um, admonished and corrected. And it will lead either to repentance or expulsion for lack of repentance. And this is how you promote holiness and maintain the purity of the church. Third, they said based on 1 Corinthians 11, uh, the last part of the chapter about, about uh, communion, Anabaptists agreed that those who had repented, believed, and being baptized on their confession of faith and thereby submitted to the community discipline of the band was to, were to celebrate a memorial supper together. 
symbolizing and pledging again their commitment to each other and to God. And fourth, baptized believers share their earthly goods with other members of the body as described in Acts 2 to 4. And these four points defined who an Anabaptist was based on their interpretation and application of these verses. And they were very straightforward in their, in their interpretation and application. So a major area of diversity among Anabaptists to this day is the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the words of Scripture. Anabaptists insisted that the Holy Spirit must inform any true reading and interpretation of Scripture, but the diversity surrounded how much spirit and how much letter, how, how much spirit and how much text of Scripture. Another way to say it is the letter or words of Scripture, are they over the Holy Spirit or is the Holy Spirit over the Word? And uh, literalists, literalists place more emphasis on the meaning of words of Scripture and on details of application, and spiritualists place more emphasis on the witness of the Holy Spirit, the inner word, they called it, and the inner spiritual life of the person in their reading of Scripture. And so the result was tension. Uh, tension in the 16th century, and there, there really was a lot of conversation among Anabaptists about struggles struggles, conversations about how this should be, especially in conversations about how to apply the Scripture. Uh, in the New Testament over the Old Testament issue, uh, often I would say that we aren't sure what the value of the Old Testament is, and that may be an exaggeration, but I'm just saying. I, I think there's some... Uh, lack of clarity about the, the value of the Old Testament since the New Testament's over the Old. Uh, another issue here, I believe we would all agree with the hermeneutical principle that we should obey the commands of Scripture, but I do not believe the position that you can only do what the Bible commands is valid or workable. Following this rule, you would have to say that there is no biblical command to drive a car, so you cannot drive a car. And there is no biblical command not to smoke, so you can smoke. And many other things. So in interpreting and applying scriptures more involved in following two rules or three rules. Um, and I don't, I don't have a grand answer to all of that. Um, Pilgrim Martek, which may not be a familiar name to you, but he, he was a, uh, I'll say, prolific writer. Uh, I don't know, between 1530 and 
1560. Uh, he died a natural death. Um, he he wrote a lot, and and it's probably he's a middle of the road person. Um, it's probably in my mind one of the most balanced Anabaptist writers. Uh, most of what he wrote was the result of uh, conversations with other people. In other words, the writing was a group effort. He, he didn't write anything by himself. And uh, from my perspective, that is... Um, Maybe that is the way to find uh, balance and safety in our interpretations is to have conversations with others who care about the subject too and uh, push it around. Seek, seek the mind of the Lord together. Okay, I'm going to go now to political, social, and economic issues. Um, Anabaptists rejected the view that everyone in a geographical area must have the same religion. They rejected active involvement in the political process, and they insisted that all people are equal, that Jesus intended for the church to include all classes of people, and that class distinctions are wrong. So I'm, I just chose to talk about one thing here. Uh, it has an application, I believe, uh, we are in danger of losing this distinctive if. I'm not saying we're doing this. I'm saying if. If we fail to respect other believers who are seeking to follow Christ, or if we view people as less spiritual and not qualified to belong to the church, or to have responsibility because of their color, nationality, or cultural background, or something like that. Those would be, I believe, the church uh, of Jesus Christ is made up of all who have responded to him in faith and follow him. That would be an application, I believe, of, of that principle. Uh, the next one I have is what ethic applies in human relationships. Uh, Anabaptists said believers are called to practice the Sermon on the Mount, to follow the example of Christ, to resist evil without violence, and to suffer wrong. Uh, on the basis of Scripture, Anabaptists renounced violence in human relationships. And they said that peace is a way of life. So I my reflection here, comments about this, I, I want to say we all have, but I have seen a lot of violence in human relations in my lifetime. There's an awful lot of verbal and sexual and physical abuse, and it's not just in the world, it is in the church, it's among Mennonites. A lot of slander and other relational sins. Uh, 
I think generally speaking, the Mennonite church has had a hard time addressing these issues. I'm just speaking my mind here. We have generally been passive, perhaps because confronting these evils would require confronting people who are in authority, such as pastors, uh, husbands, fathers. Um, and I, I don't think that, I don't think we understand very well the huge negative impact these sins have on people. Now, I, I probably should say, too, that all of us are guilty. I've, I've, I've related to people in hurtful ways. I know I have at times. Sometimes they've told me I have, and sometimes they haven't. But I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that some of us are guiltless and some of us are terrible sinners. I'm just saying this, this is a, an area... It's easy to focus on don't go to war and things like that and forget that this principle applies in the way we uh, are brothers and sisters together. Are you still with me? All right. The Anabaptist sense of mission. Anabaptists in the 16th century were active missionaries not only in their daily lives, but a few of them, uh, I think maybe more the Hutterites than others. I'm not quite sure about that. But a few of them actually went on missionary campaigns, perhaps primarily because they believed that not everyone in society is a Christian, and they believed that people who were lost were going to hell. Now, that was fairly blunt, wasn't it? Not everyone in society is a Christian, and anyone who's lost is going to hell. And they believed that their movement represented a return to the New Testament vision of the church, a church composed of voluntary, regenerated, yielded, and separated believers who had responded to the preaching of the gospel, so they wanted to preach the gospel. So they did this. They did this in their daily lives. Uh, the women did, did this freely whenever they were with women doing something, and men did it in their work and, and in their trials and on the way to death. And... Uh, they were very missionary-minded. Uh, we are less so, I think. I'm, I'm not trying to be critical here at all, but uh, we probably feel less compulsion to witness or be a missionary than they did. might be worth uh, considering why that is. I don't have time to go into all that this morning. Okay, my next section, I am going to combine two issues, the question of authority and tradition and the question of what is the church. Uh, except for the spiritualists, 
who tended to downplay the need for any visible gathered church. They focused on the inner and downplayed the outer. Except for them, Anabaptists understood the church to be the visible body of Christ, a community of yielded, regenerated, faithful, baptized, committed, and obedient believers, a community of saints. The anchor of Anabaptist theology and spirituality was this community of saints, formed first by the spiritual and then the water baptism of believers, maintained by admonition, fraternal admonition, and nurtured in Matthew 18, and nurtured by the supper of the Lord. By communal worship. So it was the anchor was uh, the spirituality uh, within the community formed by this spiritual baptism of the spirit and then water and uh, nurtured by the supper of the Lord and by communal worship and visible expressions of love among them. And also admonition of one another. And um, well, there were four marks, basically, Anabaptist marks. One was baptism. The second was discipleship. The third, um, the supper and mutual aid. And the discipleship part of that included insistence that you, you must follow Christ. Admonition if you don't, and excommunication if you do not respond positively, if you don't repent. Now, this, this gathered body concept of the church, um, for, this, for this view, the gathered body together, admonishing one another, living together, sharing together, talking together doing life together. For this view of the church to work, uh, believers have to be committed. I said this before one of the evenings. Believers have to be committed to following Jesus as Lord and to, be, to being fully involved in the life of the gathered body and participate. And the ordained have to be committed to leading as servants and to bringing body life issues to the congregation for open conversation that leads to community decisions and support. And now I want to say, since the church is not a democracy, and it's not, I believe the ordained are responsible not only to bring issues of concern to the congregation, but to frame the issues so they can be discussed and understood on the basis of scripture and tradition. And to formulate, I believe, I believe the ordained are responsible to formulate uh, positions based on those discussions that can be affirmed by the congregation. 
Now, I want to say a little something about laity. Uh, one time, many years ago, I was with, uh, I believe it was Ethel Burge, some of you may know, and I said something about the ordained and the laity. And he, he, um, he had a royal conniption. He was not okay. What in the world? He looked shocked and he started preaching to me. <laughs> All right, so I want to say, I cringe every time I hear the word laity here. And it's used fairly often at chapel. Chapel. Uh, so I want to say something about that. Laity means the people of a religious faith as, distinct, as distinguished from its clergy. I, I got this out of the definition. I know we are trying to distinguish between the ordained and the non-ordained when we use the word laity, but the word laity comes from the word lay, and it has the idea of common or ordinary as opposed to the clergy or, or ordained who are in a different class. They are not common or ordinary. I believe the words laity and clergy promote the idea of two classes of people in the church, clergy being more spiritual and advanced and the laity being ordinary and common. And I believe the term non-ordained, I know it's longer, but I think it's more uh, acceptable. I think Ethel told me, well, the word laity and clergy, that, that, that's worldly churches. <laughs> that's his definition. So for whatever that's worth. Uh, in relation to body life and so on, I'll just say that um, we, we moved away from this area in 1990 and returned in 2014, and I, I think I was somewhat shocked when we came back and felt different. And, of course, maybe it had to because more people and so on. Um, but I think some of it had to do that it felt like we had less body life in 2014 than in 1990. But I think that has improved in the last three, four years. Uh, this distinctly Anabaptist view of the church, I think, is in danger of being lost in many Mennonite churches. I, I know quite a few Mennonite churches fairly well. Uh, I know pastors and people in the churches, and I know something of what goes on. And uh, and I know uh, I know churches personally. I know about them that they never do have a conversation as a congregation about what they believe, or or a discussion about issues of concern. Uh, somebody, the ministry or someone, I don't know, uh, maybe a group of people that aren't even attending the church make decisions about these things. They're not talked about. And uh, from my perspective, that's, <clears throat> that's a difficulty. That, that's me speaking, okay? Okay, the next uh, 
The next section I have is uh, I'm combining two issues here. The Anabaptist view of baptism and the Lord's Supper. So I'll summarize uh, baptism and the ban and the Lord's Supper. Uh, Water baptism, by public water baptism, a person confessed one's sins. This, this was the idea. Confessed one's sins before the congregation of God's people. Testified to one's faith in the forgiveness of sins through Christ. And was incorporated into the fellowship of the community. Water baptism was a pledge, it was a promise, it was a vow to the believing community that I've experienced a new birth, and I will, live a, I will follow Christ, and I will live an upright life, and I will submit to, to this body of believers, and I will be... I will, I will submit to this body even in, in use of the ban. I, was, I, will, I will trust the judgment of these people concerning my spiritual state, my conduct. Now, I, I doubt that many of us uh, were thinking that way when we were baptized. I doubt it. I'm just saying this, this is... Uh, this is 1500s thinking, all right? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying I doubt most of us thought about it just that way. Uh, so the ban or its communication is understood by Anabaptists to be a natural part of the promotion and maintenance of holiness, a natural part of the discipline, admonition, and correction process. Uh, the, ban, the ban was to be administered only for refusal to be reconciled to a brother or sister or refusal to stop sinning when you're admonished about it. Uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, just as water... Baptism testifies that one is serious about the demand to love God above all, that one has died to self and risen in Christ. So the supper testifies to one's seriousness in loving one's neighbor as oneself. The Lord's Supper was to be shared with those who had committed themselves to Christ in the church in baptism and who continued to commit themselves to admonish and care for one another. Now, I have some evaluation here and some comments and concerns, various things. Uh, first of all, about baptism, um, and I haven't, I did do some research on this, but maybe not enough. I haven't done enough yet to really satisfy myself. But I think there is evidence in the church fathers from 100, that is from the end of the New Testament, to 300, to the time of Constantine, even during that period, that both adults and infants were baptized. I think there's proof of that. 
In missionary work, adults are baptized upon conversion, and it appears that uh, some infants were baptized as well. But I want to say I'm not trying to promote infant baptism. Okay, I'm just saying, okay, <laughs> it really bothers me if I or we make statements that aren't quite, they aren't quite true and, and we can't acknowledge that there's some difficulty with that position or there's other evidence. So I'm trying to be honest here. There's some evidence of infant baptism early on. I'm not promoting infant baptism, but I am promoting, I want to promote the idea that it would be helpful to parents if we could have a brainstorming kind of conversation about the spiritual condition of children and the needs of a child and how to best uh, help them in their spiritual life as children, and and when they're quite young, uh, what do they mean when they say they love Jesus? And especially after they express a desire to be converted or they actually respond to the gospel when they're eight years old, all I'm saying is our view of adult baptism seems to require they be adults. I think a lot of our children uh, get lost in a in a no man's land when they respond at eight years old or they they ask for spiritual help between then and and when uh, they are considered old enough uh, to be baptized as an adult. So I'm just saying it would be helpful to have conversation about that, especially how to help them through those years. Uh, another issue, in both baptism and the Lord's Supper, Anabaptists generally said that there is no saving or sacramental or presence of grace in the ceremony itself. There's no saving value in the water. There's no grace in the water. Uh, the bread or the wine. So most of them said that the Lord's Supper is a memorial and that material things cannot mediate uh, spiritual, the divine. It's kind of a general Anabaptist view. So I have um, some concerns about that. I believe the means by which the Holy Spirit and Jesus and grace are present with believers, whether at baptism or communion or in our daily lives, how, how, the, how the Holy Spirit and Jesus are present, I think, is a mystery. I do not believe that the Lord's Supper, this is me just saying my thing, I do not believe the Lord's Supper is merely a memorial. I don't think that makes me a heretic, okay? 
I believe that physical elements and the outward ceremonies are visible signs that point to, lead to, and participate in God's grace. That these physical symbols and ceremonies uh, serve a purpose. They are vehicles that connect us to grace, to God, and they lead can lead a believer to a deeper walk with God, uh, deeper lives of love, uh, surrender to God, and obedience. I'm not I'm not arguing for any change in anything. I'm just saying uh, God is present and communicates Himself in a mysterious way, and um, the Catholics had an explanation for how how the blood and the blood and the body of Christ were present in the in the uh, bread and wine, and I don't think they're right, and I don't think we need to try to devise some metaphysical explanation for how the mystery the mystery of God's presence, the Holy Spirit and Christ's presence. So I'm saying I think there's more than a memorial. And uh, one other item with the Lord's Supper, um, I, I do struggle with the view of the Lord's Supper that, that uh, makes, makes it be so exclusive and it's only us. Now, I, I struggle with that maybe primarily because it, it, it can make us think like um, believers not from our church are unworthy to be communed with. I, I think it can, it can foster some ex, uh, exclusiveness and superiority. Um, but I do understand, I do understand what's called close communion and closed communion. I do understand it, but I'm just saying that it, it, I think it's kind of easy to um, lapse into it's us and everybody else is them. And uh, they don't quite measure up to us. One other item, in the Anabaptist tradition, believers were to bring pure and regenerated cells to the table as an offering, Lord's Supper. I believe many 16th century Anabaptists viewed the church as more fully perfected and holy than it actually was. And that wherein someone was not perfect, they thought they could purify the church through the use of the band. I believe this view of how perfected a believer is is not accurate to reality. It's not really accurate in relation to Scripture that gives so much instruction about how to grow and what we need to repent of. And I believe using the band to promote perfection and not for refusal to be reconciled to brother or sister or refusal to turn from sin. 
when it's used to perfect, perfect, perfect. Um, in the way that it was used in the 16th century too often. I believe that's wrong and I think it's unhealthy. And again, this is just me talking. This is me saying my thoughts. And then I have in my notes, I'm not even sure about the desist from sin part because let's be really honest here this morning because some of us have had uh, what we might call a weakness for the last year and we've not gotten rid of it yet. And it might be a sin. It, it might be having bad attitudes toward people or having a uh, private sin that nobody knows about. And it's, it's something we struggle with. We've had it one year. We've had it two years, five years, ten years. Some of us have had these for 50 years. I'm not excusing anything. I'm just saying we need to be thoughtful about um, the level of perfection that we talk about as what is necessary when the reality is that's not what it is. Okay? And, and then I think what happens is that um, when, when there's a failure to be honest about where we are and when we all have to act like we're being better than we are, then we can't be honest and confess our sins. Therefore, we can't grow into the level of maturity and holiness that we could if we were more free to be honest and confess our faults. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm moving along. What does it mean to be saved? Uh, Roman Catholic view, receive the sacrament. The Protestant view, general Protestant approach was uh, they, they grounded salvation completely in the value of the work of Christ on the cross. A work that was seen as efficacious, able to meet the need because of correct thinking about it and faith in this historical death of Christ on the cross, which they said makes it possible for God to credit the righteousness of Christ to this person's account who believes that Christ died for them on the cross. Now, it sound, might sound really technical, um, According to this view, the value of the cross or the righteousness of Christ is imputed to a person's account outside himself in heaven in a, the term is forensic or legal sense, without any passionate believing that results in willing or doing by the person who benefits from it. In other words, a holy life is we hope for, but it's not absolutely necessary since if you believe the right thing about this, the righteousness of Christ is credited to your account and you will go to heaven. Now, I want to say you may think I've overstated that, 
and I, I assure you, not everybody who believes this view actually lives an ungodly life. I, they don't. Okay, but I wanted to read something here uh, to demonstrate that what I said was actually what uh, some Protestants are very concerned about, this view, but I don't have time, so I won't. Um, Anabaptists said regeneration is a substantial reordering of the heart as a result of faith and repentance. And that the believer surrenders to Christ as Lord and dies with Christ to sin and rises with Christ to a new way of life. That's the Anabaptist understanding of it. I've heard many, many ordained and non-ordained people talk about, say things like in Sunday school or in sermons, so on. And I'm not talking about anybody here, okay? Uh, I've heard, I've heard things said uh, about salvation that they sounded to me very Protestant. Uh, about Im imputing the righteousness of Christ to us outside of us in various various statements, and I I think that our our thinking I'm, I'm saying in general is so influenced by Protestant explanations of salvation that there's there's a general lack of understanding I think of the believer's death and resurrection with Christ. And, uh, and I know there's there's uh, good things on the radio. I know there is. But there's also a lot of things said on the radio that, okay, they're not scriptural. Um, now, the Anabaptist understanding of salvation in the church can easily turn into the view that believers are perfectly regenerated at conversion uh, and that the primary task of discipleship in the life of the church is to admonish people and then excommunicate those who don't change the way we think they should. Uh, so I'm, I'm just saying that I don't think that's how we are in this community, but the, the grace and mercy of God must be extended and there must be discipling that leads people into it. And I do know that some people do not respond positively to admonition and there is a time for excommunication. That is true. Uh, but I'm saying most of us have areas to grow in and... Uh, this, this is where it should be happening, is within the life of the church and the uh, conversations and discipling times that people have with one another. I believe the Anabaptist understanding of salvation is more biblical than any of the alternatives. I do firmly believe that. Um, I believe there are ditches to fall into, which we need to be alert to. But I, I do feel like that this area, uh, if, if we're not, if we are uh, on the wrong track in this area, uh, it's pretty hard 
there are negative consequences for a person's spiritual life. There may be. And for the life of the church. I want to make a comment yet about nonconformity. I have not talked about nonconformity um, in, in dress and so on. And uh, I'm going to say I haven't because 16th century Anabaptists did not focus on this issue. Uh, most people in the 16th century in society dressed modest. And Anabaptists didn't look any different than the rest. And I'm saying the women had head coverings of some kind, and they, they, they wore the same type of modest work clothes and so on. Um, Mental Simons one time was on a stagecoach, and, and uh, the headhunter, I don't, let's see, what were they called? Stopped the coach was standing there and asked, is Menno Simons on this stagecoach? And he jumped off and said, no, he's not on the stagecoach. And, and he didn't, no, you know, he didn't recognize that this was Menno Simons. I mean, the, uh, the difference, the biggest difference, I think, between a Mennonite man and a non-Mennonite man, Anabaptist, was that the Mennonites, the Anabaptists, did not carry a sword. Uh, someone might have noticed that and uh, figured something out. But I'm just saying it, it, they didn't focus on it, not because they didn't care about modesty, but because there was modesty in general. Uh, there was, though, um, some struggle between several groups of Anabaptists and I believe they actually ex excommunicated each other. I'm not making light of this. I'm just saying. And uh, it was over this, that the one group, um, a lot of the people in that group uh, worked with cloth, and, and the, the clothing that they wore was finer, and uh, I don't know exactly what all was involved. I don't know. Uh, and the other group uh, were woodworkers, and they were really skilled in woodworking, and they had beautiful houses. And so the, the, the uh, beautiful house people excommunicated the people who were dressing fine, and the dressing fine people excommunicated the people who had fancy houses. You know, I think that does demonstrate that there was some concern about applications and modesty and, the, and affluence. But I'm, I'm saying in some of the things that we expressed concern about, there wasn't the same level of concern because it was not a problem. And I'm not saying by that that we shouldn't care about these things. I'm just saying. That's why I didn't talk about, didn't have a category for that. Um, okay, I had more, but I will stop. Uh, 
I really, I really do believe that you. What we want to do, I think, is encourage um, deeper relationship with Christ for each person. Uh, start, start, starting with our inner life with Christ, and the way the way we think, the the way we respond to the Scripture, the way we respond to the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is an opportunity we have to be in relationship with Christ. And it's out of that that we become and we are the kind of people we are. But it's also true that everybody everybody needs other people. And so it's not just about me and my spiritual life and whatever God and I got going that's working really well. I'm not making light of that. I'm just saying. Our spiritual lives are also about uh, being honest with other people about our spiritual lives and uh, being open to conversation with them about ours and theirs. And so this this is the uh, kind of... Um, this is the tradition that we have inherited. And there are some weaknesses and uh, some ditches to fall into, but I believe that there are many strengths. I do believe that. Uh, there are a few other things going around in my head, but I think I need to stop. May the Lord bless you.